Welcome to the Epidemic Belfast podcast. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe, a researcher on the project and a public historian. Epidemic Belfast is a public history and medical humanities learning resource from Ulster University. It aims to map the changing experience of infection and disease for individuals and communities in the unique urban environment of Belfast from the 19th century to the present day. On this edition of the podcast, I talked to doctoral candidate Rebecca Watson, studying at the University of Ulster, about her research into Victorian and Edwardian asylums in Belfast. Hi, Rebecca, and welcome to the podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in this subject? Yeah, so I am a PhD candidate at Ulster University and I'm researching the use of psychosurgery in the UK. So my interest would extend to the places where psychosurgical treatments um, such as lobotomy occurred. In 1829, the Belfast District Lunatic Asylum was opened. Why was this built? In January 1826, wanted adverts were placed in the Belfast newsletter by surgeon Robert McLooney seeking a site on which to build a lunatic asylum for people from counties Down and Antrim, as well as the town of Kirkfergus. And it specifies the need for at least six acres of land within one mile of Belfast, as well as having access to plentiful spring water and also needing running water either on site or nearby. And so a site of farmland owned by a Mr. Stevenson was selected and approved by May 1826. And the Belfast Asylum opened in June 1829 on the Falls Road in the west of the city. And it was built following the 1821 Lunacy Ireland Act, which gave the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland the ability to establish funded district asylums to ensure an increased provision for the lunatic poor. Now, Rebecca, am I correct in assuming that this location is currently occupied by the Royal Victoria Hospital? That's right. Um, the original buildings were demolished and the Royal Victoria Hospital was built. Can you describe the therapeutic interventions that were used inside the asylum to treat those that they regarded as mentally ill? So in 1837, Samuel Lewis stated that many extraordinary cures have been effected and upon an average, nearly one half of the patients have been restored to sanity by the skillful and human system of treatment introduced and successfully practiced by the governor. This is certainly a very positive report on the treatment provided in the asylum. And in reality, the main treatment revolved around therapeutic employment. So work was of significant interest to the management of the asylum, who describe it as most beneficial to the patient's mental, moral and physical interests. So male patients worked weaving linen and cotton. They also carried out gardening and farming and women carried out spinning, knitting, as well as other domestic roles. And certainly work was a key element of moral treatment, which was quite popular more generally at this time. There was a belief that in treating the patient as if they were seen, they were more likely to achieve control over their malady. And concerns about ensuring the continued good nature of the asylum can be seen in the 8th District Asylum Report, which reads, What can be more cheering to the philanthropist than to see such numbers of his mentally affected brethren so healthfully engaged and so comparatively happy in their allotted pursuits? The Belfast District Lunatic Asylum did also use restraint. Several of their annual reports discuss restraint versus surveillance, where the question is posed, is it better to enslave the mind than enchain the body? 
the idea being that restraint over moral discipline is oppressive. And the use of restraint can be shown in the case of a young woman who was married, who expressed a desire to commit suicide, and she would beg to have her hands secured so she wouldn't be able to carry that out. The asylum manager stated that they obliged tying her hands as an act of mercy, as well as of paramount duty. However, this is being reported on at a time when restraint use was a matter of debate as to being demoralizing. So there is a possibility that that story is not quite representative of the truth and perhaps the patient was restrained against her will. There are also descriptions of muffs being placed on the hands or imposition of a straight waistcoat, as well as the use of corporal punishment by methods such as the shower bath. The Belfast Asylum Management advocated against the total abolition of restraint as it being impossible. And we see still in 1897 in The Lancet, a discussion of the Inspector of Lunatics report by Dr. O'Farrell requesting action on the use of restraint as only being used with the direct instruction of a medical officer. And he also decided that he would recommend keeping records of every use of restraint and seclusion. So restraint and seclusion were still significant aspects of the operation of the Belfast Asylum at the end of the 19th century. So can you describe the wider conditions within the asylum over the Victorian era? In almost all of the annual reports of the Belfast District Asylum, health is described as being good and there are usually low numbers of deaths. And from these reports, it would seem that those confined within the asylum were shielded from some of the diseases that were occurring outside, such as cholera, of which only a few cases were recorded, as well as smallpox. However, in 1848, the patients were badly affected by dysentery and 15 of them died in one year. The patients received three meals per day, which consisted of stirabout, milk, potatoes, soup and bread. If you were actively employed in the asylum, you also received an extra four ounces of boiled meat four days in the week, and that later increased to five. Diet was important and it was part of a therapeutic regime, so there were exceptions to the diet if it were recommended as part of a patient's treatment, and that could include additions of mutton, tea and wine. In 1848, there was the adoption of a system for two night attendants to provide medicine, drinks and to watch over patients who had expressed suicidal ideations. And it seems strange that to this stage there would not have been night attendants while the patients slept. But nonetheless, it does show some interest in the welfare of patients. Although similarly, in connection with the ideas of restraint and the debate on restraint versus surveillance, there is a possibility that this was an additional method of surveilling the patients to ensure control over their behaviours. So did social class and gender affect admission to the asylum? For class, um, the Belfast District Lunatic Asylum was for the insane poor. So it provided for those who could not afford to pay for private care. So in that sense, class in some ways restricted access to the asylum because it was a philanthropic effort. However, we do see discussion on the inclusion of pay patients and whether an expansion should occur to include patients above the rank of pauper who could afford to pay something, but not the amount required for the lowest level of board within a private asylum. 
but the management of the asylum and the governors had concerns that mixing these classes of patients would see problems, including expectations of the pay patients with regards to diet and their surroundings being much higher, as well as possibly receiving more respect from the staff members who would favour them over the pauper patients. And this was described as detrimental to the comfort and welfare of the inmates at large, and it was not enacted. For gender, in the early years of the asylum, female patients tended to outnumber males. However, this shifted in 1840 and there was a concern that there were no further spaces available for male patients and this continued to be a problem. In fact, overcrowding generally became a major issue for the asylum as the 19th century progressed and those who were deemed incurable were seen as a possible remedy for this overcrowding problem. In the 11th annual report, it states there are many harmless incurables in the house who if received into the workhouses of the district would tend greatly to relieve the establishment as well as enhance its usefulness by being enabled to receive both urgent and ordinary cases without that delay, which at times unavoidably occurs. So here we have the asylum saying we can't cure patients and we think that the workhouse would be a better situation for them to live in because there they would still have access to their therapeutic employment but they wouldn't be taking up spaces within the work or within the asylum which was overcrowded as well as gender and class Interestingly, we can see examples of the asylum managers and governors acting as arbiters of moral judgment. There are several references to those who were admitted to the asylum following crimes, who were then described as not showing any symptoms of insanity. For instance, in 1838, this was the case for three women who committed infanticide, as well as John Lynn, who killed his father with a chisel in 1832. The asylum managers describe his father as being a highly respectable individual. And so the Lord Lieutenant was asked to reconsider his entry to the asylum on the grounds that he evidenced all the characteristics of a perfectly accountable being. And so he was sent to the county jail. There is a deep concern for the moral character of the institution and cases such as this were seen as a great evil by the management of the asylum. And there is a continuing distinction made between those who enter the asylum on a so-called curative retreat versus those who have entered and are described as criminal or dangerous lunatics. The asylum management and governors saw it as inappropriate to be providing criminal, criminal lunatics with the same accommodation as the pauper lunatics. And do you think it is possible to estimate the prevalence of mental illness during the 19th century in Belfast? We do see an increase in the number of patients in the Belfast Asylum and it opened with accommodation for 100 patients in 1829 and by 1911 there were 811 registered as being resident in the asylum on the census and this increase can possibly be explained because of the shift to urban living that occurred during this period as Belfast became industrialized as the impacts of poverty living in overcrowded housing and bad working conditions came with that but descriptions of illness are mania monomania mania with epilepsy congenital idiocy and so we have to be careful not to apply modern day notions of mental illness to those patients who were confined within the asylums certainly the causes for insanity within the Belfast asylum point to wider social issues that led to a patient being admitted 
for instance, pride, jealousy, grief, religious excitement and enthusiasm or physical causes such as abuse of mercury and other medicines, epilepsy, head injury and even functional disease of the uterus. So whilst we can see patient numbers increasing, this does not necessarily point to an increase of mental illness, perhaps a prevalent increase of mental illness. And so it would be difficult to, to understand for certain um, the numbers of people suffering from mental illness during the 19th century. Now in 1913, the Belfast Asylum is closed and a new facility is opened in the south suburbs of Belfast. And it was called the Purdysburn Villa Colony. Can you explain this change in institution? So as I mentioned earlier, the Belfast Asylum was significantly overcrowded. So in 1893, there was provision for sleeping accommodation for 400 patients, but the total number of those confined within the asylum was 594. Also, the number of lunatics held in the Belfast workhouse was 492, and that was being expanded to accommodate increasing numbers of insane lunatics. And there were 112 patients who should have been confined in the Belfast asylum who were living in the Balamina workhouse. So at this time, there was a recognised need for a new asylum. However, because this would have significant costs, it was decided that a committee should be appointed to devise the best way of providing the necessary asylum accommodation. In 1893, a special meeting was held which discussed the impact of industrial growth of Belfast on the numbers requiring asylum care, as well as the impacts of encroaching factories on the air quality around the asylum. It was believed that convalescence and clean air in the asylum was vital, and so a rural setting was recommended for consideration. In 1895, the Belfast Corporation purchased the Purdysburn Estate, and in 1913, the new Purdysburn Villa Colony was opened and the Belfast Asylum closed. However, its life continued as the Belfast War Hospital during the First World War, opening in July 1917. It was closed by the War Office at the end of 1919 and then it was demolished um, and the new Royal Victoria Hospital was built in its place. Rebecca, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Epidemic Belfast. For more information and to read articles related to today's episode, as well as other ones in the series, you can visit our website www.epidemic-belfast.com.